Well, good morning, New Hope. Glad to be with you again today. Whether you're uh, 10 or whether you're one at home alone, maybe uh, watching from your car and you're watching just on your phone, welcome. Really glad that you're part of this. Glad that you got to join in the worship that Michael just led us through. He'll be back in just a few minutes to take us through some more worship, but really glad to be together with you this morning. Send us a note if you get a chance. Let us know where you're watching from. We always are glad to hear from you, and perhaps as you're watching um, the service, you see different individuals on your screen popping up, different cities they're watching, and join in with them and, and let us know where you're watching from. We'd be glad to hear from you. I want to start out um, with a passage that we've been anchoring ourselves with this week um, and last week as well. We started a new series last week called Reasoning, and let me just bear down with you on 1 Peter 3.15, and you'll see it come up on your screen, but read this along with me. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, and, and the Greek word there is apologia, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And your translation might say, for the reason, be, to be willing to give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Before we pray, just look with me at this word apologia. And this really bears on where we're going today and what we're going to be talking about. Apologia is... We, we think of the word apology when we hear it in the English language, and, and that's frankly where it came from. But it, that, that's not exactly what it means here when we begin looking at the Greek language and the way that it relates to this passage in First Peter. It's talking about being able to make an answer for yourself. Why you believe what you believe. And Peter's writing this way saying, if someone comes up to you, how are you going to respond to them? See that verse that we just read there? That was written by the very one who, as a young man, found it very difficult for himself. He actually struggled to make an answer for why he believed what he believed. He struggled to defend why he was a follower of Jesus. And we saw that on Easter Sunday, that he actually ran the opposite direction. And he began cursing at people because they were telling him that he belonged to Jesus. What changed? How does the old Peter write so different than what the young Peter believed? Well, for one, he was an eyewitness to the risen Jesus. And as an old man, he's looking back on the young Peter. And he's saying what I would say to you this morning. The whole reason we're in this reasoning series is don't be caught with your guard down. You don't want to be caught not being able to give an answer for why you believe. The word always that's used there in 1 Peter, it indicates this need for constant readiness, always being this place where you're ready. Yet he says at the very end, yet with gentleness, and that's the part where God's working on me all the time. Do it with gentleness, do it with reverence. But he tells you why. It's not enough to tell you to do it, he tells you exactly why. Here's the why. Because you never know when someone's going to approach you and ask you why you have the hope that you have within you. Why do you have a hope in Jesus? When the world seems to be melting around you and the virus seems to be taking over, why do you have a hope? What's that hope based in? I'm speaking specifically to parents right now. If you've got children in your home, 
You're, you're raising grade school children. You've got teenagers in your home right now. Maybe your kids are toddlers, or maybe you're a parent of an adult child, and you find yourself thinking that they're thinking just like you. You're living among people who think like you think you think, but maybe they don't. Maybe they're not convinced of the same things that you're convinced of. This passage that we're looking at this morning and what we're going to be talking about today is really going to help you with that thought. Is the individuals that you're influencing thinking the same way about God's word? We'll come back to that. Before I go any further, I'd like to pray with you this morning and invite you to do that with me. So wherever you're at right now, would you bow your head and just close your eyes and pray along with me? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single individual who's um, dialed into the service right now in whatever fashion. Some may watch it later today. Some many are watching it live right now, Father, and, and their hearts are ready because we've worshipped you and we find ourselves in this place where we're opening up your word and we want you to speak, so we ask that you would do that. Encourage us. I'm asking that you would encourage us this morning. Use your word to give us a sense of, of joy, that we would walk a little bit taller and stronger and straighter as a result of having been part of this this morning. Encourage us as we look at your word and as you remind us again that you're the God who's in control. We pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. And if you opened up your Bibles this morning and you found yourself in 1 Peter to follow along on that, 1 Peter 3.15, you do want to put a finger or a bookmark there and, and keep track of that if you have your Bible open. And I'm really going to encourage you to have your Bible out this morning. If you haven't done that yet, please do that. But in the meantime, will you flip over to the book of Revelation? If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's the very last book in the Bible. It's Revelation 22 is what you're going to see come up on your screen. And we're continuing with this thought of being able to make a defense because the Bible closes with a declaration of its own truth. The reason that you can trust it is because it makes declaration of its own truthfulness. And what you're about to see is absolutely remarkable. Watch with me in Revelation 22, 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. If anyone adds, if anyone takes away, there's a price to pay. John writes very specifically, you can't do this because of what the source is for this book. I, I know, church, of no other book like this on planet Earth. No other book makes this kind of demands on humanity. No other book makes that kind of demand on the world of mankind to say you better not add, you better not take away, or there will be a price to pay. And I've read lots and lots of books, and I've never seen one that ends this way except the Bible. So the Bible demands a treatment of it, a view of it, unlike any other source material you will ever come across in all of your life. It places an implicit demand on all of humanity to respond to the content or be prepared to pay the consequence. And you won't find that in any other source material on this planet. And it says it repeatedly. 
Solomon wrote this himself in the book of Proverbs. I want you to see the way that Solomon stated it as well. Look with me on your screen at Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. It's tested, Solomon writes. Now, let's quickly assemble together these pieces that we have so far. If you and I are to be in this place where we can make an apologia, that we're always ready to make a defense for why we believe, why has the word of God placed a hope in you? Peter says this. He says, I want you to envision a friend who's going to walk up to you and engage you in conversation and say, hey, uh, I know you believe certain things. Why do you believe what you believe about Jesus? Or maybe specifically, they, they might challenge you on the Bible and say, why do you believe what you believe? And I'm going to ask it this way. Why do you this morning, why do you have a hope in Jesus? He lived 2,000 years ago. Could it possibly be that he's relevant to you today? How would you answer that? Now, you could respond this way. Well, the Bible tells me to believe the Bible, and so I believe the Bible. Well, that's an answer, but it's actually not a defense. That's, that's actually circular reasoning. That's actually not being ready to make a defense. It's more of a dodge. It's like you don't know what to say, and so you come back with that. You're not really sure what to say. I believe that we would all agree that intelligent people deserve an intelligent response. And I'm sure your friends are intelligent. And so they ask questions and coworkers ask questions and they deserve an intelligent response. So for the sake of the person who asks you, and maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's someone living in your home, maybe it's your own child. I don't know who the person would be in your social circle, but perhaps as a non-believer, they come to you and ask why do you believe that? How did you land on that position? Why do you have that hope? So for the sake of that person, it's really important not to allow circular reasoning to become the justification for believing when you're speaking with those who are genuinely seeking answers. You can't just say to them, well, the Bible tells me to believe, so I believe. And there's got to be something more to it. That, that reasoning doesn't hold water. For a non-believer, if they have no regard for the word of God, they're not going to accept that answer. However, if it's possible to test the reliability of God, would you want to do that? What if you could test the reliability of God through science and through history and make a discovery? Would that be a defense? Then... Then the internal claims that you make, the internal claims of the Bible's own trustworthiness are compelling when supported by external evidence. And that's what we're going to do this morning. It's different than anything that we've done in New Hope in a long time, but I hope that you're patient with me as we bear through this. Let me take you to Psalm 1830 and show you why you should do this. Psalm 1830 says this, this God, look at what the king wrote, King David wrote this, this God, his way is perfect, the word of the Lord proves true, proves true means it's been tested, 
It's been tested and it's been found to be true. So God's own declaration says, go ahead. Go ahead, test it. It's been proven over and over. So you should be able to do that. According to God's word, you should be able to test it and do exactly that and it will stand up. Now remember what we're doing here in this short series We're talking about reasoning, and I'm saying there's reasoning here behind why you should have confidence in God's word. This internal evidence that you know, the circular reasoning that you're tempted to use, it works in tandem with the external. And when the accuracy of the external matches the internal, that's a win, because when someone comes to you and asks the questions, why you believe what you believe, you can respond Now, perhaps you're thinking right now, I already know what I believe, Mark. I already understand what I believe. Why should I have to make a defense? Well, hopefully, if you're a believer, the answer is this. Because Christ compels you, for one, he tells you to be ready to make a defense, but also because you care. Because you care about that person who's in your social circle. That one who lives in your neighborhood who asks you that question, and I'm sure it doesn't happen often, but don't you want to be ready at that time when it does? What about when your own child asks you? Why should I believe this stuff? Well, because Christ compels you and because you care. So let me give you a big picture of why we should care. And this is really revealing. It's going to show you some of these statistics, what your neighbors are thinking. Go with me. Just look on the screen and you'll follow along and don't let your eyes glaze over on this. I I know it's factual and some of you are not interested in facts so much, but drink this in. There's a reason I'm taking you behind this because there's a God behind these facts. Watch this with me. 93% of U.S. adults believe that Jesus was a real historical figure. Well, that's good news. That's, That's a good place to start, right? But I believe that George Washington was a real historical figure. I believe Napoleon was a real historical figure. But that's a starting point. 93% believe Jesus was a real guy. 90%, now keep going with me, 90% of Americans own a Bible. That's still pretty good news. Uh, Perhaps they received their Bible as a gift from a graduation present or or maybe they inherited it from a family member, maybe a relative passed it down, but for whatever reason, 90% of Americans own a Bible, they have a copy of God's word. I'm not saying 90% read it and understand it. Let's keep bearing down now. 64% of US adults believe that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. Okay, now we're narrowing it down. Now we're getting down into a subgroup That's a large group. That's a large group out of 328 million Americans that 64% of U.S. adults believe he was resurrected. But that means there's also a really large, large group who are not there yet. They don't believe that. Let's go down one more step. 57% of Americans believe that Jesus is definitely returning to earth again. And if you drill down a little bit deeper, you're going to find in those statistics that age really matters. In other words, millennials, they're not so given to those high numbers. More like 30 and 32%, where people over 55 are more like in the 70 and 80 percentile. 
So age really matters when you get into these numbers. Not everybody believes the same, but here's the really, really big reality check. The reason I gave you this first four so that you can get this one. Balance what you just heard against this. 44% of American adults contend that the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same spiritual truths. A question for you. Do you believe that it's likely, and let's take that 44% and put them in a silo right now, let's take that silo and say, do you believe that the group of people within that silo, that 44%, thoroughly read and processed and came to that conclusion because they really processed that information? Or is it more likely that they arrived at that conclusion through cultural imprint? In other words, what society pressed upon them. Remember what we're doing here? You're being reminded why you should be ready to make a defense for the hope that's in you. See, these numbers, these numbers are your neighbors. Every neighbor has a name. Every name, every person is precious to God. That's what these numbers represent. And God's behind this, backing, up us, backing us up with information about why you should be ready to make a defense. So what I'm saying to you this morning, you're looking at the evidence, and I'm saying we have a gigantic gap in our world between the 90% who own a Bible, those who possess the Word of God, we have half the nation believing in some kind of biblical slop that just kind of mushes together and they're thinking God is saying, I don't care how you get here, just get here. That's the way they're processing information. Yet on the opposite side, you have Jesus saying unequivocally in the word of God, I'm the only way. I am the only truth. I am the life. And don't you dare mess with that by taking away or adding to it. The things that I've written are not to be altered. I do not change. So I'm saying this morning, you need to know that the Bible that you own is much more than just a history book. It's much more than just a moral guide. There is no other source like it on planet Earth because no other book makes these kind of claims and makes these kind of demands on the world of men. And on top of all of that, God says, my word, it's alive, it's active, it does things, it probes, it searches, it refines. If God's word has done things to you, say that to somebody sitting next to you right now at home, just turn to them and say, God's word does things. I trust that you're doing that right now. God, God's word moves you. If you're all alone right now in the car, just, just say it out loud. No one's gonna even hear you, just, but say it to God. God, your, your word moves me. So can you, can you make a defense for why you believe what the Bible says? Are you equipped that way for the reliability of the Bible? I'm gonna walk you through this. We're gonna walk through this deliberately and it'll go pretty quick, but let's hit three things. First of all, your Bible is unique in origin. 
At, at the risk of using circular reasoning, for, first thing I'm going to do is show you what the Bible says internally about its own origin. And we're going to reason this internally, and then we're going to reason it externally. Second Peter 1.21 says this, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Meaning that the Bible never had its origin in human minds. It didn't originate with the mind of man, but God spoke through humans who were carried along by the Spirit of God. Your Bible might say carried along. Mine, mine says moved by the Spirit of God. They both mean the same thing. Here's the imagery that goes with it. The, the phrase represents the image of a, a sail on a sailboat that's been fully opened. And as the wind sweeps across the surface of the water, the sail puffs out full of wind, and the boat begins to be moved along. That's the image that's going on here. They were moved along by the power of the Holy Spirit filling the sail. So they raised their spiritual sails, and the Holy Spirit filled them and propelled them in the direction that he chose for them to go. That's what that means in 2 Peter 1.21. Now stay with that for just a moment. Peter's really, really old when he writes this in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter. And he's looking back on the young Peter. And first he talks about being able to make a defense for yourself. And now he says, this word that you're defending, it wasn't written by an act of humanity. It was written by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you catch the weight of that? Even though Peter was an eyewitness to the things of Jesus... Even though he personally saw the resurrected Jesus and he ate with him and talked with him, even though that's true, Peter says this word of God that he's given to us, that's not the ultimate source. Even though I've had an eyewitness experience, that's not the ultimate source. The ultimate source is God himself. Meaning this church, God did not depend on the eyewitness experience he used the eyewitness witness experience, but he didn't depend on that. God the Spirit directed the recording of all their writings. He directed them in the direction that they should go, giving them supernatural revelation. So the Bible itself claims that it's not the product of mankind. Here's why this is really important for you this morning. If it was, it would be subject to fallibility. So when you open up your Bible, you've got your Bible sitting in your lap right now. Maybe you're looking at it on an electronic device. When you open up your Bible, you have firsthand eyewitness writing that was done under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. But as we said earlier, it's one thing to authenticate it internally. It's another thing to authenticate it externally. We don't want to use just circular reasoning when we're making a defense for why we believe what we believe. So imagine this with me. Imagine having 40 different individuals write their views on religion. People from every social economic background, ranging from great poverty to great wealth, who come from every walk of life, and by that I mean kings and paupers, statesmen and fishermen, and poets and physicians. Imagine taking those 40 individuals and locate them on three separate continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. 
and expect them to write in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And their writings are going to take the forms of poetry and history and civil law and criminal law and parables and biography and prophecy and personal correspondence and allow those writings to span a 1,500-year frame of time. Is it likely that those individuals over that long a period of time are going to come to the same conclusion, especially about the things of God? Would you think that those writers could possibly come to the same conclusion? Try writing something today in 2020 and ask someone in 3520 to write accurately on the same subject in a different language, in a different country, in a different culture. And if you ask them to do that and write on the biggest subject of all, on the subject of God, and the ultimate reality related to that, would they agree? Well, the biblical writers represent exactly that. Moses was raised in Egypt. Daniel was raised in Persia. Luke is a Gentile who's a physician. Peter's a fisherman who lives in Galilee. And Paul, he's a Jewish scholar who lives in the Roman Empire. Your Bible was written by 40 different authors. Yet here's the great thing. There's thematic harmony among all of them. And there's consistency without any contradiction whatsoever. The circumstances of your Bible and the writing of your Bible, it seems to guarantee its fallibility. Yet from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's amazingly consistent. Just take a moment right now and thank God for the miracle of the Bible. That's just one fact I'm gonna give you this morning, but you're holding a miracle in your hands. Here's the next component. Your Bible is unique in its survival. Now, compared with other ancient writings, it has more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. More evidence than any 10 sources combined that it's the real deal. Let me show you a quote from Dr. John Warwick. He's a, a professor at Concordia University. He said this, to be skeptical of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Well, let's see if that's true. Because that statement right there, as accurate as it could be, what if Dr. Warwick is a fan of God's word? That would be circular reasoning then. So let's see if it would stand up to that test we talked about in Psalm 18. Would the statement that he just made stand up to the test? of what the world would consider authentic. Well, the reliability of the Bible should be tested. It should be tested by the same criteria that all documents are tested by. And I say that with confidence. Let me show you the three factors that scholars use today. And stay with me on this, it'll go really, really quick. First one is the number of existing manuscripts. You see this on your screen. The second one is the dating of the manuscripts. And the third one is the proportion of variant readings. I know it sounds really academic at this moment. Just bear with me on this. According to the number 
of existing manuscripts. Hear this. In the world today, there's 5,300 Greek manuscripts in existence. There's 10,000 Latin manuscripts in existence. There's 9,300 other early versions, and they total up to 24,000 in existence today in 2020. That means your Bible ranks first in all the world of existing manuscripts compared to any other sources of ancient literature by a factor of 10. Now, that's the number. Here's the dating. The New Testament documents date to between 45 A.D., and 100 AD. From Matthew to Revelation, we're just talking about the New Testament right now at this moment. We'll come to the Old Testament in a minute. Non-biblical works of antiquity, those things that are outside of scripture, the average gap between the original composition and the earliest copy is more than 1,000 years. The average time gap between the New Testament original documents and the earliest copies is 70 years. Now, obviously, the greater the gap in time, the greater potential there is for error. Now, we've hit the number, we've hit the dating, and now we're going to hit the variant readings, and we're going to put all these three things together. And trust me, I'm coming back to God's word in just a moment. This is really going to strengthen you and encourage you. Now, among the ancient literature pieces that are written and that are available in our world today, scholars regard Homer's Iliad as the second most reliable ancient document in existence in the world. If you're not familiar with the Iliad, it's the story of Troy, the Trojan horse. I know you're familiar with that. So Homer's Iliad is the story about the city of Troy, and it's regarded as the world's second most reliable ancient document meaning reliable to its original source. Why? Because there's 643 manuscripts in existence today, which are copies of the original source. That means the the original document was lost to time, but there's 643 manuscripts that exist today that are copies of the original. That's, That's remarkable in this day and age. And so scholars believe that Homer's Iliad is faithful to the original. So just do this with me. I'm going to put this chart up on the screen for you. Guys working back in the tech room, they're going to put this up, and you're going to see a little chart that compares the New Testament that you hold in your hands right now to Homer's Iliad. Look look with me at this. The Iliad was written in 900 B.C. The first copy was made in 400 B.C. That's a time span of 500 years And from that point forward, 643 copies were made. Now, the New Testament was written between 45 A.D. and 100 A.D. 125 years in 125 A.D., the the first copy was produced. It was believed to be a copy of the book of John. That's only 25 years after John died. And we told you already we have 24,000 pieces of literature, copies of the New Testament in existence today. Now hear me on this. Put these pieces together. The New Testament contains approximately 20,000 lines in it, of which 40 are in question. That's less than one half of 1%. The Iliad, it contains 15,000 lines 
and 764 are in question. Roughly, if you do the quick math on that, you'll find that's about 5%. So hear me on this. There's, remember, there's a God behind all of this. There's a God who put this in your hand, this miracle that you have in your hand. The second most respected document of antiquity has over 18 times more variants than the New Testament, yet it's only three quarters the length of the New Testament. I hear this. The sheer number of New Testament manuscripts that we possess tremendously narrows the margin as to the doubt of its accuracy. Of the one half of 1% of the New Testament variances, only one eighth of those amount to anything other than a misspelling or a change in the way a sentence is described. Let me show you an example of that. This is building confidence for you in why you can trust the word of God. Let me put these five samples for you up on the screen so that you understand what we're talking about when we say variance. Number one, Jesus Christ is the savior of the whole world. You see the D is missing. Number two, Christ Jesus. There's a reversal in words. Christ Jesus is the savior of the whole world. Number three, Jesus Christ. The I is missing in I and is. Number four, Jesus Christ is the, the E is missing in T-H-D for the. Or number five, Jesus Christ is the savior of the whole world. Do you see the O missing? See, the majority, this is why I give you this. Hang with me on this. The majority of the variants involve nothing more than a missing letter or a misspelling or a reversal of order of two words. So when you hear someone say on the History Channel, or when you hear someone say at work, or someone in your own family circle say to you, you can't trust the Bible? It's full of errors. They, they don't know what they're talking about. You can push back on that, saying, well, well, wait, no, that's not accurate. This is what it's talking about. This is what it's speaking of. It's not full of errors. You can trust it. The errors are less than one half of 1%, and they're very, very minor. So we hit really quickly here the number of existing manuscripts, the dating of the manuscripts, and the proportion of the variants. Now, here's the part you're going to love, especially if you love archaeology. Some members of my family love archaeology. I hope you do too. And I'm going to give you some visual archaeological evidence to help you have great confidence in God's word when he says, I have you. I'm causing things to work together for good. Trust me. Let me take you through the archaeological evidence, and, and then this is the last component, and we're going to sew all this together. The oldest known complete Bible in existence in the world today is called the Codex Synacticus. It dates to about 300 AD. It's so precious that it's only been examined by four scholars in the last 20 years. It's held at the London Museum. And it's held under lock and key, and people can view it as they walk by a case, but it's held there under glass, and very few people ever get a chance to look at it. Actually, some of it came to Ann Arbor a few years ago, and I made application to go look at it and study a portion that was there, and I got denied because there were so many scholars waiting in line, waiting to see it. Only four have had the privilege in the last 20 years of holding it in their hands. And it contains the whole Bible, both the New Testament and the Old Testament. 
but it's a copy of the original documents. Here's what we do have that we can examine much more closely that's not so much under lock and key like the Codex Synacticus is the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you're going to see an image pop up on the screen. You've heard about this, I'm sure, talked about in history, but let me tell you why this is so precious. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. Primarily, it was the scroll of Isaiah, which is what you're looking at on the screen right now. Now, since then, many, many other pieces of the Old Testament have been discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the first one that was discovered was discovered was the scroll of Isaiah, and it was found in a cave in northern Israel. This is significant. It dates to approximately 100 B.C., yet the scroll of Isaiah from 100 B.C., 100 years before Jesus walked the planet is identical to your modern Bible in over 95% of the text. The remaining 5%, it's just merely variations in spelling or there's missing pieces and they can't make it out. So 100 years before Jesus walked this planet, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written and put away Prior to 1947, when those were discovered, the earliest known copy of Isaiah was the Codex Synacticus that was dating to 300 A.D. and a very ancient Masoretic text that dated to 900 A.D. Here's what happened when God allowed us to have the Dead Sea Scrolls. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls moved the dating back 1,000 years in history with zero change in the text. That means when you open the book of Isaiah and you read it, and when Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, or when Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant, Jesus the Messiah, or when it says the virgin will conceive and will bear a child, as it says in the book of Isaiah, when you read that, you're reading the exact same thing that the ancients read without any variation. Does God know how to preserve the truth and the accuracy of his word? Dr. William F. Albright is a professor at Johns Hopkins. He said this, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. And then on top of that, a professor at Yale said this same thing, Professor Burroughs, the excessive skepticism regarding the Bible stems not from a careful evaluation of the available data, but from an enormous predisposition against the supernatural. See, that's the root of unbelief. That's a predisposition. So last quote to give you this morning. Dr. Bernard Ram said this, well-known archaeologist, highly respected. Jews, he's speaking about the Old Testament primarily here. Jews preserved it as no other manuscript has ever been preserved. They kept tabs on every letter, syllable, word, and paragraph. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practical, perfect fidelity. Who ever counted the letters, syllables, and words of Plato or Aristotle? So what happened? How did we get to the place today where the Bible's under such assault? Why do people not trust it? How did we find ourselves in 2020 with people challenging something that's so validated over time? Well, about 200 years ago, it became fashionable to begin assaulting the Bible during the Age of Enlightenment, especially in the world of academia. 
It transitioned from being a trusted source document to being considered unreliable. And so they began teaching that in universities, and it, it actually crept like a disease around the world. Yet because of the grace of God over the past 100 years, your Bible has been consistently corroborated by recurring archaeological evidence and new discoveries. One more quote for you. This is from Dr. Nelson Glick, and he's a very respected archaeologist. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery, catch this, has ever controverted a biblical reference. True. Absolutely true. The ever-increasing archaeological record serves to authenticate your Bible. 200 years ago, it was really fashionable to say Moses could not have authored Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, known as the Torah, the five books of the Torah. And the reason they said that is because within those books is the Ten Commandments. And it was thought by scholars that that system of law did not exist at that period of time. Moses lived around 1400 B.C., and they believed that that system of law could not have been in place. So therefore, other people must have written it much, much later, and then they attributed it to Moses, trying to validate the God of the Bible. On that logic, they suggested there were multiple authors and that Moses was a fraud until the Hammurabi Code was unearthed. More archaeological evidence. It was unearthed in 1901. You're seeing an image of it that's going to pop up on your screen. And what modern archaeology has done is it's proved that numerous legal codes predated Moses actually by 300 years. This code that you're looking at right now, I, I know it's just an engraving, but if you examine it, bring it up online. Maybe you're at home right now, you can do this when we're done. Bring it up online and look at the Hammurabi Code and you'll find all kinds of engravings across the bottom. And you'll find it fascinating because it predates Moses by 300 years. 300 years before Moses was born, there were legal codes in place. That's the Hammurabi Code. Again, 200 years ago, it became widely held among scholars that the Hittite Empire did not exist, that there was no such thing as the Hittite Empire because there was a lack of physical evidence. But let me show you what God's word says in Exodus 3.8. God's saying, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, he's speaking to Moses, and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, and based on that, because there was no archaeological evidence 200 years ago, people began throwing stones at the Bible saying the Hittites did not exist. Until 1876, when archaeologists unearthed the Hittite capital, and you're gonna see this image come up on the screen. And this image is of the, the Lion's Gate that was discovered in 1876. And more recently, scholars have uncovered more and more and more, and they found that it was a massive, prominent civilization that indeed existed during this period of time that Moses walked the planet. More recently, scholars have directed their attacks at the New Testament. And this is what they've been saying, that the book of John cannot be trusted, that the book of John could not possibly have been written by John, that he would have been way too old to have written this, and plus, there's discrepancies. 
And the discrepancies they would point to would be coming from John 5, 1, 2. Let me show you that verse. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. I want you to see the detail. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porticos. I love that God moved John's heart to write down that detail because he didn't have to do it. Here's why I love it. Because scholars who are attacking the book of John said there's no way that John could have written that, plus it's full of error because everybody knows there's only four porticos, porticos in all the pools in Jerusalem. All the Judean capital only has pools with four porticos. There's no fifth portico until 1964. In 1964, archaeologists discovered that underneath what they had thought previously was the earliest level of the pool of Bethsaida at the Bethsaida Gate, they actually discovered an older pool, an older mikveh that had five porticos. And so you see this image come up on the screen. This is the pool at Bethsaida. You can actually go to Israel today and look at that yourself. Now, all these things that I've shown you today, this is not an exhaustive list. This is actually a tiny, tiny list among the thousands of pieces of archaeological evidence. But I want you to hear me on this now. We're transitioning back to God's word to let God's word stand on what we know to be true. This is really crucial. If it were historically unreliable, if you couldn't support it, from the view of scholars, you would have to take the next step and consider if it was theologically reliable. But if the Bible is only a book of history, it's not threatening. It doesn't require anything of you. I'm sure you opened up American history books in school and you never found anything at the very end of the history book saying, you better not change this. You better not take away or add to it because history books don't demand anything from us, but your Bible, it teaches absolute truth. History books don't do that. It claims that the writings were directed by the Holy Spirit of God, that it did not originate in the mind of man. And as a product of God, it carries the weight of God as God filled their sails and moved them along in the direction that he wanted them to go. To write as eyewitnesses, but eyewitnesses who are moved by the Spirit of God, it carries the weight of God. And so God says things like this in 2 Peter 1.21. This is where we started this morning. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. One more verse to give you. Romans 15.4 speaks to the same issue. Paul wrote, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have, there's that big word again, we might have hope. Why do you have the hope within you? Romans 15 just gave you two basic reasons that God gave you the Bible that you hold in your hand. Parents, remember this. Teach this to your children. This is why you study the Bible. It says this in Romans 15.4. It was written for your present instruction and so that you might have hope 
a future expectation. I asked you at the very beginning, what would you say to someone who walked up to you and asked of you, why do you have hope? Well, you can respond with, well, well, let me show you the historical evidence. And the external evidence is huge. and, And that might persuade someone. What it should do is encourage you. It should validate that what I'm studying here is the real deal. And do that, if you're going to do that, with gentleness and reverence. But hear this. Ultimately, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who moved the authors, who filled their sails to write what you have before you today is the same Spirit that uses the Word of God to validate that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. And by believing that, you can have life in his name. That's the same spirit that moved them to write about the fifth portico, that moved them to write about the commandments of God. That same spirit declares that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing in him, you can have life in his name. So the evidence, both internally and externally, It provides really compelling arguments for why you can believe the Bible. But in the end, it's about God convicting. It's about God convincing that we are sinners and we stand before an awesome God who's going to demand of us one day. and He's going to say, you need Jesus. And so I sent him. So Jesus came, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. One final thought this morning, and then Michael's going to lead us back into worship, and he's going to close out the service, but here's what I want you to hear from my heart to you. One of the great evidences, probably the greatest evidence that the Bible is from God, is not based in history, it's not based in archaeology. It's based in Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Here's what I know about mankind because I are one. I'm just like you. Here's what I know about us. If we were responsible for the production of the Bible, we would never write things like that about us. If we go out of our way to prove that we're good, And we go to great lengths to do that. We would never write such a dark history that man is full of sin and we're corrupt and wicked. That without Jesus, we're going to hell. We wouldn't do that if it was a product of our mind. We would do anything but admit that we're sinful because we do lean towards making ourselves look good. Pride never wants to admit that it has error. On top of that, the Bible also teaches that humans can do nothing to fix our sin situation. We can't fix it. So we need God to fix it. And that also goes against human pride. So the Bible you hold in your hands this morning makes a startling claim. And this is what sets it apart from every other source in the world. Every other document in the world including religious documents, tell you that you can fix yourself. But God's word says that if you claim 
that you recognize that you do have sin and that you cannot fix it, but rather that you have put your hope in the one who can deal with it, the one who can take your sin away, well, then eternity is waiting for you because you've recognized that Jesus is the one who can fix it. You've read God's word and you've processed it. We've seen today that when the Bible is put to the test, the Bible is proven. When the Bible says that there was a global flood, you can believe it. When it says there was a guy by the name of Moses who led a nation out of Egypt, you can believe it. When the Bible says there was a Hittite nation and that it existed, there was a Hittite nation. And when the Bible says there was a pool in Jerusalem that had five porticos, you can believe it. But it's the truth that extends beyond the historical. That's what pulls at our heart. That's the truth that extends to the eternal and it captures my heart. That God would send his son to die for me. So when the Bible says all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, you can believe that too. But this is what's exciting to me and better still should be exciting to you and you wanna tell your neighbor this. The Bible tells me that God demonstrated, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And John three sixteen says, whoever believes in that one, will not perish, but will have eternal life. So I'm wondering, what was your big takeaway today? And by that, I mean, what landed with you? Send us a note. Write us a note and let us know what landed with you. Why should you be ready to make a defense for why you believe what you believe? I said in the beginning, because the word of God compels you, that's, that's a one good reason. Because you care that others have legitimate questions, that's another reason. But here's a third reason. Because it encourages you. You are to be equipped with reasoning because it encourages you at times when you're not sure what to trust. With that in mind, would you pray with me to seal this in our hearts? Let's pray together and then we'll step back into worship. Father, I thank you for those who have tuned in to hear your word. And I pray, Father, that you have encouraged us as a result of that. Use what we're about to do in worship, the declarations that we're making, God. I I pray that you would encourage people where they're at just to stand in the room that they're in right now, to sing along with Michael as he leads us in this declaration of statement of faith that we believe that your word speaks and it speaks truth and it is reliable. And so when you say you've forgiven us, you have truly forgiven us. God, I pray for those realities to rest heavily with us that you would seal it in our heart. In Jesus' majestic name we ask this. And all God's people said, amen.